This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. In 2007, homicide statistics in Ciudad Juarez had been stable for several years. But there were ominous rumblings of trouble on the horizon. As the Great Recession was weakening financial markets and economies across the globe, University of Texas professor Ricardo Ainsley says... The economic situation in Juarez was a disaster. Something like 50% of the maquiladora industry in Juarez was servicing the United States auto industry. And in the United States, that auto industry was on the verge of collapse. Many, many people lost their jobs during that time. So Juarez was a, a city suffering tremendous unemployment. The U.S. Immigration Act of 1996 had deported more than 500,000 Mexican-born criminals from American prisons over the previous decade. With few jobs waiting for them in Juarez, it was a human resources bonanza for organized crime groups in the city. After the U.S. assault weapons ban expired in 2004, Thousands of military-style firearms purchased legally north of the border were now smuggled to Mexico. Both sides of the border had corrupt officials and soldiers facilitating the entrance of these weapons. Well, one thing we know very clearly is that all of the organized crime groups in Mexico a significant perception of their armaments come across the border from the United States. Texas has a tremendous number of stores that sell guns and certainly gun shows within, I don't know, say 100 miles of the border. It was common knowledge in Juarez that corruption was a problem, especially among the municipal police. But few at the time realized the depths to which the Juarez cartel had penetrated inside the city's law enforcement. You went from the Juarez police being the main armed wing of the cartel with pistols to people carrying AR-15s, AK-47s, And so the level of sophistication and power of the weaponry became a total game changer. 
And of course, that had a consequence in terms of levels of violence and victims also. But in 2007, Juarez is still relatively peaceful. You look at the headline of El Diario in January 1st, 2008 is, oh my God, we have 301 murders in the city. What a disaster 2007 was. What's happening? We need some responses. We need some explanations. We need to understand this. They had no idea what was coming. This is episode nine of The Red Note, The Imaginary War. My name is Lydia Cacho. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In 2008, authorities in El Paso arrested a Mexican police official with ties to the Juarez cartel. When this official started cooperating with U.S. authorities, historian Oscar Martinez writes that a rapid series of executions began in Juarez as the cartel tried to purge itself of potential traitors. This power struggle gave Sinaloa cartel leader Joaquin Guzman Loera, a.k.a. El Chapo, the opportunity he needed to launch a hostile takeover of the Juarez territory. Like the Juarez cartel, the Sinaloa cartel had emerged in the 1980s when the DEA's anti-smuggling campaign in the Caribbean made Mexico's border cities the ideal route to ship drugs to the U.S. By this time, the Sinaloa cartel had already seized control of the illegal drug trade in California and was overtaking Texas and Arizona. My understanding of, of the Sinaloa move on Juarez was that Sinaloa had first tried to take control of Laredo, where the Gulf cartel was running things. And uh, for the same reasons that they later came to Juarez. 
because Laredo is a main thoroughfare for drug trafficking. When Sinaloa started making its move on Nuevo Laredo, you saw it with the execution of police, a lot of the same things we later saw in Juarez. So the Gulf Cartel hired and created the Zetas to help them fend off the Sinaloa cartel. And they succeeded. Sinaloa had to beat a retreat out of Nuevo Laredo. They lost that battle. Retreating from Nuevo Laredo, then they said, well, then let's make the move on Juarez. And they did it in a very stealthy, very planful, strategic way. It wasn't just a bunch of guys going in with AK-47s, no. See, when they went into Nuevo Laredo, nobody knew about the Zetas. But when Sinaloa starts moving into Juarez, they learn from Nuevo Laredo. The first thing they start doing is they went after the police because that was the armed wing of the Juarez cartel. And they wreaked havoc within the police force. They were being ambushed in their homes. It was something to behold. Assassins working for the Sinaloa cartel publicly murder several police officers who worked for the Juarez cartel. The Sinaloans unleash La Gente Nueva, its paramilitary unit, along with two affiliated gangs in Juarez, the Artistas Asesinos and the Mexicals. The Juarez cartel countered with troops from its own armed wing, an army of former police officers called La Linea and the Barrio Azteca Gang. Homicide rates in Juarez soared as the two cartels and their affiliates battled for control. Between 2001 and 2007, Juarez had seen an average of about 230 homicides per year. In 2008, that number climbed to more than 1,500. By 2010, when more than 3,500 citizens were murdered, Juarez was officially declared the most dangerous city in the world. You can still see the lingering effects of the war as you drive around downtown Juarez. Restaurants and shops that were boarded up a decade ago as their owners fled north of the border to El Paso. Half-finished construction projects, conceived and commenced during the maquiladora boom of the early 2000s, but halted during the fighting, never to be resumed a monument to the city's unrealized dream of the past decade. According to Oscar Martinez, the mayhem unleashed by the fighting in Juarez 
gave other criminals the cover to launch their own wave of crime. Kidnappings, bank robberies, car theft, assault, extortion, and express kidnappings against ordinary citizens became commonplace. Juarez has a history of gang culture. In all these little neighborhoods, as one person told me, you know what? If you're a teenager, if there's 10 kids in your neighborhood, you form a gang. You're not necessarily involved in criminal activity. You may be smoking cigarettes underneath the, the tree at the corner. Or you may be having a beer. Or maybe another gang is stealing hubcaps. Many teenage boys were abducted by the gangs and brought to the cartel to do vigilante work. They were the disposable boys, victims of human trafficking for organized crime. Everyone was discriminating against them for being poor, young, or indigenous. They were marked as criminals. Many were afraid and had no way out. Part of the consequence of the militarization of the border is that the Juarez cartel, as other cartels too, started trying to monetize their product domestically. Historically, in Mexico, cocaine and heroin and stuff like that, all of those products were shipped to the United States. It didn't make sense to create a domestic drug market in Mexico when just crossing the border, that kilo of cocaine was worth many times more. But when the border started becoming militarized, they made a decision to create a domestic drug market. They would make less, but they would have a steady source of income. So now, the local gangs become the players. Juarez had its Aztecas, who were their big bad gang. Sinaloa comes in and they start making inroads and that's where the artistas asesinos come in. They were the, the Sinaloa version of the Aztecas. And a lot of the blood and the violence was between those groups. They were proxies for the Juarez and the Sinaloa cartel. When the violence starts happening, the ordinary street gangs start becoming involved. All over Juarez, people are being extorted. Small, medium, and large companies. That's because there's no authority. That isn't Juarez cartel, Sinaloa cartel. That's just people seizing the opportunity because there's no one to tell them no. And the Juarez cartel is no longer in charge. Because remember, the city was pretty safe. When the Juarez cartel was in charge, when Amado Carrillo was going to eat uh, at the local restaurants, his favorite seafood place, whatever, people would not have gotten away with this stuff. They had a hold on this city. People were afraid to step out of line. 
But once it's all falling apart, it's like a mass chaos. Even before the outbreak of the war, crime had been a major issue in Mexico's 2006 presidential campaign. Felipe Calderón Hinojosa, the candidate for Mexico's conservative party, PAN, had promised to launch a war on Mexico's drug cartels in an agreement with President George W. Bush. When violence exploded in Juarez, the now-president Calderón sent thousands of troops to restore order in the city in a combined military and police campaign known as Chihuahua Joint Operation. Hijas de su Maquilera Madre is a feminist border collective fighting against human trafficking, femicides, disappearances, and for the defense of the territory around Juarez. Felipe Calderón declares the war on drugs. His slogan was, so the drugs don't get to the kids, right? So this activates the Chihuahua plan, which is to bring hundreds of military and federal agents, along with the municipal police, with the state police and many police forces. These forces of the municipal police are also militarized. They are given large weapons. Calderón realized that drug trafficking was not governed by cartels, but by the police forces of the entities he sent the army to, because it was controlled here by some elements of the state investigative police and the municipal police. That's journalist Julian Cardona. He realized that he had to exert control over the drug trade, so much so that he decided to send the army and the federal police to take control from them, which is something we did see happen. He took control from them. The drug market was not taken down, on the contrary. When the soldiers were here, large and small-scale drug trafficking grew. The drug trade grew. However, the narrative in the media and in the official narrative is that there has been a war between cartels and Juarez. State violence from the government itself has never been deemed an element of consideration. This violence we've had in recent years is more like government violence to me, injected by the state itself, in which the ordinary citizen is the target of, is subject, any citizen, the violence and the rights are no respected. We saw it very clearly with the military incursion that Calderon ordered here. Military and federal agents who committed mass violations of anyone's human rights, from alleged criminals to alleged perpetrators of whatever stuff they came up with. There were a lot of innocent people, imprisoned. The members of Hijas de su Maquilera Madre say that it was the city's youth who bore the burden of this violence. Before, it was known that the conflicts among drug lords happened solely amongst them, between those who were involved in the drug cartels. But with Calderón's war, we see an administration... Um, 
mainly the youth population, young people who begin to be criminalized for being young. Because it was precisely the youth of Juarez that was being murdered, right? In neighborhoods with poverty and vulnerability, I was a teenager at the time, and you realize that suddenly messages would circulate on social networks saying, there's a curfew. At such time, you have to go into your houses and whoever comes out of the street, we're going to shoot them. When the army came into Juarez, the city was demanding action. There were encuestas, you know, surveys after surveys saying, we need the army, we need help. The federal government has abandoned us. And yet within a year, the populace was like, no, this is not working. You are violating human rights everywhere. Uh, we are angry. We're tired of the roadblocks that pop up and make it three hours before you can get to work. They lost the hearts and minds, if you will, of the people uh, relatively quickly. The women of Hijas de Su Maquilera Madre were young girls during the outbreak of the war in the city. To think about myself, during that period, well, I was very, very young. I had just started elementary school, and it really was a matter of fear. I grew up locked up in my house. I have very few memories of going out to play, and, well, the memories I have of going to the park, well, it was dead bodies covered on blankets in front of my house or things like that. At some point, well, I saw a beheaded person outside my elementary school. That's also when the tabloids here, they started to boom. They had very graphic images that were shown to us in our daily lives. The members of the student collective Uni Unida experienced a similar upheaval to their lives during the war. It had a very strong impact on my childhood. This violence that we experienced here in the city I could hardly go outside to play, and I remember that near my house, they had a curfew. So at a certain time, we couldn't go out anymore, and the house across the street would be full of military. And I would always be like in panic. My grandmother and I locked ourselves in a room, and she would try to tell me stories or talk to me about other things to stop me from thinking about it all the time. But still, well, you're sensitive to what is going on around, and so it is difficult. It instilled in me a sort of feeling like panic, like terror, of self-preservation, and a very strong feeling of not wanting to see these raw images anymore that were shown everywhere. A strange feeling of being fed up. At nine years old, I was feeling depressed and worn out. As Juarez descended into violence, on the other side of the Rio Grande, El Paso, Texas, 
had been steadily climbing in the rankings of America's safest municipalities. In 2010, El Paso was officially named the safest city in the United States, a title it would continue to hold for three consecutive years. Even drug lords began migrating their families north of the border. They lived and studied in the U.S. and operated a war in Mexico. Prior to the Mexican-American War, Juarez and El Paso had been joined as a single city. The gulf of a few hundred yards that now separated the two might well have been a million miles. Journalist Lorena Figueroa. Sometimes even people here from, from El Paso think that Juarez is in Guatemala or just it's, just, it's just in another country, even though we have it next to us. And uh, there's a different perspective also on how from outside you look at in, into Juarez when you don't live there, when you don't live in Juarez. Now with El Paso, you have all the local agencies here, local, state, and federal agencies. You have law enforcement uh, everywhere. Also, you have to consider, you have to know that El Paso is half the population than Juarez. You don't have that many problems with infrastructure, with getting resources, with getting education, with getting even a job. I think that when someone wants to commit a crime here, they think it twice. There's corruption, but not as corruption that we still have in Mexico. But that's one of the reasons why you have, ironically, on one side, the safest city in the United States, and the other side, the most dangerous city, not even in Mexico, in the world. Villas de Salvarca is a working-class neighborhood in southern Juarez. Most of the families worked in the maquiladora industry. There was a boy who was turning 18 years old, and he decided to have a party to celebrate his birthday in a vacant house on one of the streets in the neighborhood. Most of the kids who were at the party were high school students. They all played football, American football. The football league that these kids played on was the AA Football League. Apparently, there was a kid in the neighborhood who was not part of the party, who knew that the party was coming. He apparently fed that information to the Aztecas who thought it was a party for the Artistas Asesinos, who went by the acronym of the double A's, Artista Asesino, AA. The party gets going, everybody's having a great time, and around midnight, a convoy of, I think it was three SUVs full of 
Aztecas shows up and they get out and they they just go into this house and and just massacre all these kids. But I think there were maybe 15 or 16 people killed, another 40 or so uh, wounded. Some kids were able to jump over the back fence. Some were able to find places to hide in the house. The whole thing lasted just a few minutes, but it was a bloodbath. I talked to somebody who went into the house in the immediate aftermath, actually looking for his son who described the amount of, of blood. It was just horrendous. Because these kids were trapped. They just shot them point blank with automatic weapons. It was a terrible tragedy. After years of enduring the violence that had engulfed Juarez, the murder of 15 innocent teenagers in the Salvarcar Youth Massacre was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was a turning point in Juarez for a couple of reasons. When the president of Felipe Calderón, who is in Japan on a foreign mission, when he is asked about the massacre Villas de Salvarca, you know, immediately in the aftermath, nobody really knows for sure what's happened. He says, well, you know, a lot of these kids were involved in gangs. They were high school students. They were student athletes. Some of them had won the governor's education award. They were, they were just kids. And so there was a tremendous outrage. The families repudiated these public statements that were ill-informed by the president of Mexico. Calderon made three visits to Juarez in the month after the Salvarcar massacre to contain the damage from his remarks and met with the families of the victims. He changed his narrative of blaming the young boys, but never did he once mention how femicide victims in the city had been discriminated against and blamed for their own death. Even in crime, gender bias is an issue. During Calderon's trips to Juarez, he also met with local officials and civic groups to begin formulating a plan that would halt the violence and rebuild the city. The Mexican government had been going to Medellin, Colombia, to Rio de Janeiro, looking at communities that were suffering high levels of violence and in, in, in trying to study the, the, uh, the models that were being used to intervene in those communities. They were about halfway through that process when Villas de Salvarca happens. They fast track a mass intervention in the city that involved the investment of about $250 million in a program called Todos Somos Juarez. They built several high schools. They built a lot of elementary schools. They funded after-school programs so kids could 
have a place to be at school and not have to go back to their neighborhoods where their parents were working at the maquilas and there were gangs waiting for you to come home. I don't remember how many orchestras they funded across the city. They had programs for unemployment training. Juarez became the first city in Mexico to get full health coverage. There were a lot of things that came out of Todos Somos Juarez that affected the social fabric of the city. There were other variables too. But that infusion of money, I think, is, in my opinion, an under-acknowledged contributor to the reduction of violence. Chihuahua Governor Cesar Duarte created a special anti-kidnapping unit called for tough sentences to deter crimes and took measures to increase the power of the state's Public Security Council. Former Tijuana Police Chief Julian Leisaola Perez was hired as Police Chief and Public Safety Secretary for Juarez. Leisaola had been credited with reducing drug violence, but he also faced numerous allegations of human rights violations including torture and extrajudicial murders, charges that follow him to Juarez. He even admitted on the record in an interview with San Juana Martinez for La Jornada newspaper that he used to kill criminals, including women who he suspected of being involved in crime. Whether it was Leisaola's questionable tactics as police chief, the new government security measures, anti-corruption efforts, or various economic initiatives, by 2012 and 2013, no one could deny that crime in Juarez was starting to go down. The Sinaloa cartel was ruling Chihuahua and harvesting opium poppy up in the mountains. After peaking at about 3,700 homicides in 2010, the number of murders in the city was down by 80% just two years later and had fallen to 250 homicides by 2015. But Julian Cardona says that many Juarez residents have a simpler answer for why the violence started to go down. When this drop occurred, I was still reporting for Reuters. We did a story and asked a number of people about why was violence reduced. Most of them, if not all, said to us, it was reduced because the soldiers and the federal agents left. That would be the answer. I'm going to quote a friend of mine. He works at the Juarez Consulate. He's Mexican. He said, if there's one thing we realized in this, in this time with Calderon is that the more police officers, the greater the amount of crime. There was a generation of young people that grew up logged in 
And that's a generation that we're now seeing suffering because it is a great social wound, a great social trauma that was left to us by militarization. The young members of Hijas de Su Maquilera Madre say that their generation is still marked by its experience during the war. I have friends who disappeared back then, who were killed back then, relatives also. So I survived that. So that's why I called, I called myself a war child. And the generations that were there and that survived that very tough chapter, well, we survived. And we are what's left of that generation, war children, boys and girls. The members of Uni Unida. There's a lot of complaining from grown-ups to um, to the current generations, right? Like, you kids just don't go out to play anymore. Just look at him, he's always watching TV, or things like that, right? But it's also because at a certain point, violence started to get ugly, and even our parents are like, yeah, you can go and hang out with your friends, but only indoors, right? Or here in the patio, or that kind of thing. Our childhood was not as unrestricted as it was in other generations. I was kind of lucky in a way, right? Because a lot of people lost someone close to them. But it did happen to me, for instance, that my aunt was forced out of her car at gunpoint to try to kidnap her. My grandfather had an attempted kidnapping too. A very close friend of my mom's was also killed a friend of the family and part of our inner circle as well. So, I mean, uh, maybe I didn't lose someone directly from, from, uh, from my family core, but there were many losses around me. I was in my teens and, and somehow, well, this issue of these feelings I had when I was nine years old, when I wanted to preserve my life, and at the same time, I felt extremely depressed about our situation. I kept feeling like that, right? And I kept even having a, an inner struggle because, well, I was afraid to be a woman in the city because it's women and the general population they are killing for profit during these imaginary wars. Why do you call them imaginary wars? Because it's not a war against drugs. It is a war against its very population. The drug trade continues because the spheres of power and people who are part of the government continue to profit from drug trafficking and continue to profit from the bodies of women and young boys and girls. And it affects all of us. And it affects these working classes even more. So... That's why it's an imaginary war.
The Red Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinosa Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. We're joined now by journalist Alicia Fernandez in Ciudad Juarez, who conducted the interviews for this podcast. Alicia, you were working as a reporter and a fixer in Juarez during the war. Can you tell us what it was like? Of course, Lydia. I work as a photographer for El Diario de Juarez on the night shift, and it was very painful that sometimes we went to several places where a murder had been committed. It was somewhat unpredictable, which made it very risky but it was the only way to have their own version of the events outside the official versions of the government. Once I was in the middle of a shooting with hundreds of elements firing and I saw both sides. Another time I received a call saying that there was a death in some public place and I went with a colleague to see what happened. And in the designated place, they kill a person in front of us. Such situations were many for those of us who covered the conflict. Can you tell us about how journalists from outside Mexico reported on the violence that was taking place in the city around this time? All kind of international media have gone to Juarez. Great reporters from all over the world, which was good because everybody was looking at what was happening there. Actually, I work as a producer for, for many of them. Um, the border has always been a reference for other places. Did you ever work with any reporters whose approach to covering the violence in Juarez was more sensationalistic? Well, some people in the media who travel to Juarez are just interested in the sensationalism and violence. But it's difficult to put together all the media in the same box. 
because there are also like freelance journalists who spend all their money going to Juarez, who try to do a good job reporting on a very difficult situation. Well, in the digital era, all the media companies have limited resources. So sometimes they have to define what is the priority for them. It is a complex issue. Thank you, Alicia. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.